You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we take our stand with episode three, Blank Pages. Written by Jill Killington and Owen King. Directed by Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy. Crudy, you might know for The Black Swan, The Conversation, and Blow the Man Down, the movie she actually did with Bridget Savage-Cole. IMDb is giving this a 6.9, so that's up from a 5.4 in episode 2, but Rotten Tomatoes remains at a 54%. The critics say Blank Pages is the first episode that feels like a true ensemble affair branching out into scenes that don't serve to introduce us to Nick or Tom. The show is starting to bring the entire cast into focus, and it's getting easier to see both its strengths and weaknesses. It struggles a bit with pacing, but allows for deeper character work. So I agree with this critic that it does feel like we're starting to get the gang together, so to speak. Yeah. It's not just about introductions. However, I'm a little upset that they didn't start that next episode because this is the last one you really need to meet more of the core cast. You're getting Nick and Tom for the first time. So to me, it felt like a bit of a weird split time-wise. We didn't get enough meeting those two new characters and two that I was really looking forward to. And maybe I wouldn't have minded that if the stuff going on in Boulder that's bringing everyone together felt a little more impactful to me but they did feel like they struggled with pacing there. And one of the main problems I've been concerned about since the start of this show was that not giving us the journey would shortchange the character arcs. That feels like it's happening a bit here. We're getting a checklist, the highlights from the book, the things we wanted to see, and I'm kind of excited to see them on screen. But then I realized they don't carry the emotional weight because they're not paying off a journey we've been taking all this time. When Larry finally gets to meet Harold, we don't see why he's excited about that. What's built up in his mind about what kind of person Harold is. Why it's weird that other people don't feel the same way about him. That moment when they're finally together. There was a lot of moments like that. And it just feels to me like we missed something there. There are definitely things to like about this episode that I enjoyed that I'm excited to talk about. But the problems are starting to just grow a little exponentially bigger each episode for me. I'm in a weird spot with this because after you and I discussed blank pages and you gave your reasons for your worries, I agreed with you. You're right. Them showing us uh, throughout these episodes, clips of them at Boulder, does negatively impact how much that's supposed to feel like a win already. In the 94 version, you saw like the first half of, half of the whole series was you seeing them struggle just to get to Boulder. And through those struggles, that's how you learned about these characters. And you got invested in them. And then as soon as they hit Boulder, you felt the, the bit of relief, but also trepidation because it's not over. That's just the first step. And I can't believe that's just the first step. I feel like this was such a journey of a lifetime, and we're not done we yet. We didn't even get to the big battle yet. And yeah. that's part of what makes Flag and the Vegas team so scary. So all of these things were getting so early. It's sort of like, okay, why does that mean a lot to me, though? And I think that was the real problem with doing this story in a nonlinear fashion. I don't mind the flashbacks. I don't mind the jumping around. Has it been confusing at times? Sure. But I think even a person who's not familiar with the story could pick up on it. 
It's what it's doing to the people within the story. Mm. And I don't know that I see that getting better. That's my concern. It feels like that's just going to keep growing as a problem now that we have not established the baseline for some of these people. Absolutely. For example, Nick Andros's backstory in the 94 version was a lot better. Not that I didn't enjoy what happened with Nick in this episode, but it doesn't. it's missing so many pieces. Yeah, but what happened with Nick this episode? That's the problem. It's so brief. But this is my issue because while watching every episode, I'm still enjoying myself. So I'm so confused. Like I'm enjoying it while watching it. The end of the episode comes and I'm like, wow, that was really enjoyable. It's not till I start thinking about what they're missing and the differences when I start to say, but it could have been better. You're right. So it is good storytelling, quote unquote, if this was any other show. I think it's the fact that we have so much to compare it off of. What my hopes are is that when these writers sat down in the writing room, I'm thinking maybe they said, what's our thesis? What's our final thesis? We, um, CBS is only going to give us such and such episodes. They s- Which, by the way, not true, but keep going. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And I'm wondering, maybe they sat down and said, okay, everyone knows about the struggle to get to Boulder and the backgrounds. But you know what? For this iteration, I think it'd be really interesting to concentrate on the second half, which arguably in the 94 version was overshadowed by the first half. Yeah, excised almost in great chunks. Yeah. Absolutely. So maybe that's it. Maybe they're choosing to give us enough background. They're switching it up on us a bit. Give us enough background about our characters where we know about them. We will care about them. Uh, Boulder will have a place in our hearts, albeit not the same way, but the actual stand quote-unquote, is what they're going to concentrate on. And that might be more epic than we anticipated. Yeah, what I'm going to say based off that is I do think this works as a supplementary piece. If you have read the book and seen the 94, Mm. and you know this information about these characters, you can roll with this new version because you know why Nick Andros is the way he is, what he went through to get to this point. We don't really need to see it. Does it work as a standalone if you don't have that information? I don't think so. I don't think you feel nearly as much for 90% of these characters. The only one I really feel they've done justice to so far that I could pick up on his premise without former knowledge is Harold. I definitely also agree with every version is going to struggle once you get to Boulder. Because King's work is kind of infamous that people often find those sections boring Mm. when they're trying to rebuild society, figure out how does democracy work? What is it to be ruled sort of by a theocracy with somebody who stands for something religiously? It's a completely different type of society. But that is also setting pieces for why they're going to be engaged in this epic struggle with the Vegas side. So even if we're fast forwarding to section three, I think missing pieces of two is going to prove a problem either way. That journey, that establishment builds not just our people, not just the stage for the battle, what happens there and why. Because even Mother Abigail doesn't feel like a fully fleshed out character. And if we're going to be starting to move into that section soon, how did our characters form this relationship with her? Why are they attached to her? When she walks into the room this time and starts telling Glenn to shut up with all his sociology thoughts, because that's not what's important here, I know you're smart, Glenn, but enough is enough. It comes off a little bit harsh because we didn't get to see her meet Glenn, know Glenn, love Glenn, understand why he's coming from the perspective he is. It feels a little bit choppy and confused to me. Again, I'm going to keep giving it a little bit of slack 
wondering if they're headed where you're saying. But as the missteps start to grow larger, I just get more concerned Mm -hmm. instead of more on board with the process and the way they're doing things this time. Well, it goes back to what we said, I think, the first episode where these reviews that we were reading just based off the first episode and we know they got screeners, we're like, they're obviously putting in their emotions and (laughs) the way they feel based off of more than just this one episode. They got six of them. So I can definitely see where it would be hard to remove that knowledge from your viewpoint. Yeah, but see, if we got screeners, I'm not going ahead. You and I are going to watch one episode, yes. and then we're going to do our podcast, edit it, and bank it. And then we watch the second one, and we'll record that podcast so that after people watched one episode, we're coming in at the same knowledge as, the, as them. Just a little ahead of them for well, each one. But it won't even be ahead anymore because they have already watched it. No, for us. Yes. You know, we'll just be a little ahead each episode. It's not as though we'd sit down and watch all six. And then say, episode one was, well, well you know. yeah. But let's get into this episode, why we feel the way we do, starting off with the title, Blank Pages. We got the first straightforward call out to the title here with Nick talking to Mother Abigail. And he says to her at some point, this world was never interested in anything I had to offer. She responds, God believes in you, Nick, and he's got a job for you. He wants you to be my voice. You see, the world is now a blank page, and unless we're all working together, we're not going to be able to rewrite it. It's interesting how many different interpretations you can have on this. Before we knew what was coming, I assumed this was going to be an episode about Franny's diary. Oh, I was really thinking that we were going to learn about Andrew, Nick, this episode, and the blank pages is because he has to write in pages to talk to people. You're much closer to the original source of why they call it that in the King novel, but we're going to talk about that later on. Our closer look today is going to be on Nick. So if you felt like you were missing a little something for him, we're going to dive deep later on. I was thinking because Nick has to talk to Tom, and Tom can't read. So it's really, you can write anything on a, on a piece of paper. It's a blank page to Tom. A big change here. In the book and the 94, that was their only method of communication until they came in contact with Ralph Brentner. This time around, we have Franny with the ability to speak sign language. Yeah. So once they get to her, there's a a lot more of an ability to communicate. Nick doesn't have to sit there. I mean, prior to the committee meetings that they have, he spends a lot of time writing out everything he wants to say, what he wants to put forth in the meeting, because that's how he's going to have to talk to them. Mm. Well, we also got several music notes again here. Desperate by Ashlyn Malia plays while Nadine is getting herself ready. Uh, This is the one time I wasn't really excited about that song, the music being put in. Now, they're doing a good job where we have, let's say, more modern songs being inserted into the episode as well as the scoring. But the other quote unquote modern songs here, we have Do It Again by Steely Dan, which plays as Stu and Glenn are eating dinner, Glenn's smoking. I don't know. It seemed to fit better into the universe. And then White Rabbit, which is at the end of the episode by Jefferson Airplane. This didn't seem to fit that vibe. It was a little too modern. I don't know. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but the rest worked for me. It just felt out of place. There was also a jazz song Mm. when Glenn and Stu Mm -hmm. are hanging out having their scene. I thought that was perfect. Yeah. And we are going to talk all about Glenn because he's another new face this time in just a minute. But we've been kind of taking the top of the episode to go back to things we missed last time (laughs) since we are not going ahead in our reviews. We met Larry for the first time last episode. 
And you can see he's already being woven in more, his relationship established with Nadine. We talked in Pocket Savior about Larry's essence, which is hard to define. The fact that he's not a bad person, but he's not really a good person either. He's got a lot of struggle. Because of the shorthand they're doing for everyone, I don't think we're going to get a lot of that in between. We're seeing Larry again already in Boulder here, getting an idea for him coming over to the good side, even Mm -hmm. though he's a little self-conscious, unsure about himself. But I had mentioned some of the great early work in the book we get is from his mother, Alice, and their conversations, what she says to him. So I found the passage from the book. First, she's thinking about him as he comes to New York to visit her. She says, there was something hard in Larry. There were good uses for such hardness, she knew, but Larry hadn't found any yet. He would go along not thinking, getting people, including himself, into jams. And then when the jams got bad enough, he would call upon that hard streak to extricate himself, like a child using it as a bludgeon to beat his way out of traps. As for the others, well, he would leave them to sink or swim on their own. He still used his toughness destructively. He'd never sharpened that hard piece into a blade to cut people with, and that was something. But there was something in Larry that gave you the bitter zing of hearing chalk screech on a blackboard. Deep inside, looking out, was only Larry. He was the only one allowed inside his heart. Once she'd told herself, Larry would change. But she feared those days of change, the deep and fundamental sort, were behind him. There was good in Larry, great good. But this laid on, it would take nothing short of a catastrophe to bring it out. Hmm. You know, eventually, Larry starts picking up on the fact that she's upset with him. And like a child, he's saying, don't be upset with me, Ma. Why are you upset? And she's Mm -hmm. like, it's not about that. This is something bigger. And she finally says, I never said a mean word about you to anyone else. But since you pushed me to it, Larry, I'll tell you exactly what I think of you. I think you're a taker. It's like God left some part out of you when he built you inside me. You're not bad. That's not what I mean. The worst part is you mean well. Sometimes I think it would almost be a mercy if you were broke worse. As it is, you seem to know what's wrong, but not how to fix it. You're a taker. That's all. I don't know. That's just, it's so important because how do you describe that to somebody? Yeah. When you say he's not really good, he's not really bad. It doesn't quite do it. But these passages, you go, okay, I get exactly who Larry is. There's some of that in this iteration. But again, they had to move so quickly. And now I feel like we're getting to the good part where he's forming a relationship with Joe. He's teaching him how to play the guitar. And your focus is turned back towards Nadine for the bad that could be coming. So maybe that brings something to what we jumped over for Larry. Oh, for sure. It puts what we were feeling into words. But again, with a novel, King has the ability to explain a character through Larry's mother. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a perfect device to use. Yeah, I wish we could have just gotten maybe even a few of those lines when she shows up at his show before he goes on stage. I feel you on that. Except for that early, because that, remember, that's the first three minutes we meet him. It might have been too heavy-handed for us to be hearing that about him before we have any kind of uh, opinion on him. Well, exactly. You, you okay. start off thinking, oh, man, he's doing drugs. He's yelling at his assistant outside the door. Now his mom's telling him he's a taker. Mm. What is with this guy? He stole this Wayne song? And you really got to build up to why he's not all bad. Gotcha. Okay. But again, then they would need all that time to build up why he's not bad. Well, 
In my mind, all you need are a few additional episodes to get a little bit more of the character construction, a little more of the journey to Boulder Mm. instead of just going right to Boulder. You could have flashbacks to five months ago and then flashbacks to two months ago Mm. uh, before they get to Boulder. If they want to keep this nonlinear format, I think that works because the fact is CBS told them they could have more episodes. They could have as many episodes as they wanted. Oh, wow. It was the showrunners that said, first, no, 10 is good. We'll do 10. And then during the writing process, determined that actually all they need was nine. This is feeling like Game of Thrones. It is. And considering the same idea with this huge source material, I don't understand why you rush it. We don't know the full details. It could have been, you can have as many episodes as you want, but we're only giving you this amount of money. There was still an issue on that. There was still not as much perhaps as they would like, and they were concerned about some actors signing on a little more long-term, but I think long-term thinking more than one season. Uh, If it was just a few more episodes in one season, and maybe we had to sacrifice for not so famous an actor in a certain role, I think I would have preferred that. I agree with you. I believe we should not have seen any of Boulder, at least these first first three or four episodes. Mm -hmm. I love the introduction of these characters, two at a time, Mm -hmm. sometimes three if it's like a tease of another character, I think that's fine. And I think a great device to bring in the next characters could have been Harold's writing. So after episode one, we have Harold writing on the wall. Then you see at the end of episode one... Each person finding it. Larry finding it. Yeah. And then the next episode, we learn about Larry and Rita. Yeah, I love that. That's a great device that brings them all together. Because they used it here, but it was almost like they didn't know how to fit it in. Him just... Showing it to Nadine in the middle of the road. Right. I like having it be more formal to tie each episode together. Yeah. And then by the time Larry gets to Boulder and he's like, you know, what about Harold? We're like that too. Because we're like, basically Harold's the one that introduced us to the other characters as well with his writing. And this is happening over and over again that the characters are telling us that in this adaptation, but we didn't see it. You don't feel it. The way you're like, okay, I guess he's been following it all along. I I didn't really get a chance to experience that. Mm -hmm. How vital it is for his own sense of leadership and will to go on that somebody's been there before and forged a path. Larry doesn't have to figure it out all all on his own. And particularly when he is grappling with this, I can't care for anybody. I don't know what to do. That's the saving grace because there's a roadmap. Yeah. I personally feel that that conversation Larry had with Stu in episode two in the car with, in Boulder would have meant more when Stu is saying, oh, yeah, Harold's here. Mm-hmm. If we knew what, how Stu met them, which we learned in episode three, you know, Harold was like, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with you. And we see the history now that Stu has with Harold. Mm-hmm. Well, what I do like here, and this will take us into new faces and places, is, okay, we met kind of the core three episode one, Stu, Franny, and Harold, but we didn't get a chance to meet Glenn. So even though he's not our full look this time, we're focusing on Nick and Tom, the way we'll weave those characters back in so you don't forget about them because you love those three is we'll introduce Glenn and you'll get a little sidebar on what their journey was like. Mm. I actually think that's perfection. It's, it's more of the bolder stuff here that's so heavy that's bothering me. But anyway, let's get to Glenn because he's one of my all-time favorite characters. Glenn Bateman was played in the 94 version by Ray Walston and here by Greg Kinnear. 
I love both of these. I mean, Ray Walston was clearly much older. And it's funny, Glenn's character is described around the age of Greg Kinnear in the books. So Walston was a bit of a divergence, Mm. but he fit the role so well that all these years later, that's what I picture in my mind when I think of Glenn. Kinnear can bring a little more of that jazzy, almost hippie personality into it. I like the fact that his paintings serve as a portal into the dreams to make those connections here, which is not how we used them earlier on. So Glenn is a professor of sociology that went into retirement some years before the superflu hit. He meets Stu near his home in Woodsville, New Hampshire. As we mentioned, he's older. He's a senior citizen who's handicapped by arthritis in the books. But like here, he dispenses sociological advice as to how humanity might rebuild itself, what might happen in this post-apocalyptic universe. And he kind of gives characters like Stu a foothold on what they can expect. How might people react to this? What could happen when we start to try to rebuild society? They did an interview with Greg Kinnear on what he thought about this version of Glenn. He says, the weed-smoking philosopher professor who has all these ideas. There's a kind of jazzy quality to Glenn that I loved. (laughs) He sort of makes it up as he goes along, but I think he really believes everything he's saying. He has a strong mandate about his life. And the fact that somehow this was all preordained. It was all destiny. To get to play that character with these Yoda-like qualities was quite fun. I do think he's heavily sedated in many moments when he's in the show, so that might give him a little worldly vision as well. He was fun to watch. And that scene with Stu and Glenn when they're smoking the weed and there's jazz music, uh, it reminded me of a movie that we recently reviewed, Children of Men. Yeah. Now, as soon as you said that, I was thinking... Okay, but that is the slightly better version of this character that I was picturing. Mm. Now, of course, no one can be Michael Caine. Right. Okay, uh, unless you're going to get Michael Caine. But I don't know, something about the age, and maybe this is ageist of me, of Glenn in the 94. I immediately felt as though he's been through all this life experience. It's not just that he's a professor. Mm. He knows about the way things might happen, the way it might go. I guess it's a little less of his own knowledge here and a little more of the religious connection, the dreams, the things he sees from Mother Abigail. Less of it belongs to Glenn, but I don't know if I like that. It feels like taking a piece away from his character. Tell you what I do love about him. Glenn is the first person we've met in all iterations who has a dog. (laughs) That dog's awesome. Welcome to Kojak, another new character. Which is so funny because a popular book of Stephen King's is Cujo which is an evil dog. Yeah, don't put that in your head. I know. Kojak is a good dog. It's just so similar. Um, Different kind of dog. In the books, they describe that he's an Irish setter. It's so meaningful, though, to our characters who have been struggling through this apocalyptic wasteland, so much death and destruction, and even animals they mention several times. Except for deer and rats. and. (laughs) Yeah, in the books, they say they took man and men's best friends. So the dogs and the horses. Sure, they left the rats and the crows. Great. But something about not having a companion when you're alone and you've lost everything else makes it all the more difficult. And Stu's face when he sees Kojak for the first time. It's like, you have a dog? Where'd you find a dog? This yeah. is great. And he looks so happy. You look like a good dog. I hope to God that we don't have to see a dog death scene, please. Yeah, don't give us that anytime soon because he brings such lightness. Another fun part about Glenn that we changed here, and I get it. He was actually a terrible painter. In the 94 version, he loved it, but he knew he was bad at it. He made a comment like, well, at least nowadays I know I'm one of the best painters left in the world. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and Stu looks at it and he's going, what is that? They joke back and forth. He's calling him Baldy. Glenn's calling him East Texas. There's a real friendship that we haven't witnessed two strangers meeting yet on this journey who are instantly just open and trusting of each other and formed a, form a bond. You know, we get the counterpoint that we'll talk about here with how Harold reacts when they meet Stu. But it's kind of a joyous occasion to meet Glenn and Kojak. And it was good conversation. I thought the beats with them together. I really enjoyed those scenes. Mm -hmm. Something that I hope we do get to see, and, and you skimmed the surface of this already this episode. When they're in Boulder and they're trying to rebuild society, inevitably you're going to get difference of opinions, differences of lifestyles. Glenn's going to be that balance you were saying this is a theocracy where it's, where it's kind of based on like God is telling us mm-hmm. to do this. Well, Glenn's going to be that other type, uh, the educational, the democratic. Mm-hmm. What about what, what everyone else thinks? What if they don't want to do what God's yeah. telling Mother Abigail to do? Do we get a say in this? So I'm wondering if we get to see any of that. I hope we get to see some of those struggle, struggles, not just in the politics of creating a new area, but in the gray areas of humans. Because if you find yourself in Boulder... It doesn't necessarily mean that you're good. Mm-hmm. And we're learning that already. But there's, there's grays in real life. I like to think I'd be in Boulder. But there's probably certain occasions where you do things that you're not proud of or, or you make decisions that you think are for the greater good that could make others, get, um, others wonder, maybe he should be in Vegas? You know? Yeah, so, I mean, you could have a Larry type. We saw in the books there's a guy in Boulder who's constantly getting drunk he smashes up a house one night. In fact, it what, it's what leads them to recognizing we need to establish some kind of law, a police force here. We can't have people running around doing whatever they want. And maybe if there was some type of consequences, this man would have never gotten to that point. Mm. Uh, what if he laid his hands on a gun when he was in that state? So they're having to refigure out all of that. And what I'm nervous about, I get why they excise that in a lot of versions. It's not exciting to see them rewrite a constitution or figure out how to have a committee meeting where the whole town votes on stuff. But that's where Glenn really has the chance to shine because not only is he giving background to our other committee members, this is what you might expect in the meeting, this is how people might react. He's actually using his sociology background in a stealth, maybe you'd call this bad way, to tell them what to do, how to influence things. Mm. We want these five people on the committee, but we don't want to just come out and say they were chosen by Mother Abigail. This has to feel like a democracy, that people need to be part of it. What you do is have somebody else in the crowd who's a friend of yours say, hey, what about this person for office? And then everybody goes, oh, yeah, we like that person. Someone else seconds it. So you're kind of influencing things. Sure. Based on your knowledge of human psychology and behavior, Glenn gives us all that. Mm. Well, let's move along to our other big introductions this time were to Nick and Tom. So first, Nick Andros in the 94 played by Rob Lowe and here by Henry Zaga. Nick is a 22-year-old drifter with hearing loss, originally from Nebraska, who was beaten and robbed outside of the fictional town of Shoyo, Arkansas. Mildly injured in the assault and initially jailed in the books, Nick was befriended by the local sheriff and his wife. So that's what we'll talk more about in our closer look, that section that we missed. Also, in the revised edition of the novel, we see that the sickened and fugitive Ray Booth, who we get here for Mm -hmm. a minute, attacks Nick a second time in the emptied town. And that's what leads to him nearly blinding one of Nick's eyes. It looks like it just happens in the initial fight here. And in fact, that he puts Nick into a state of such unconsciousness that he 
misses the entirety of the plague and the downfall. He wakes up in a hospital and everyone's just dead. Now, that's an interesting way to take it in this adaptation. I'm excited to talk about what you think of that. But we don't get a lot more of Nick here, except that we do learn he is essentially a good person based on the way he treats Ray Ruth. And he is really the chosen one of mm. Mother Abigail. She intends for him to communicate to the group directly what she's getting directly from God. So kind of a big role to step into. And in the earlier versions, Nick is very reluctant about that at first. He does not know if he should be that individual because, in fact, he doesn't even really believe in God. You know, we get a little bit of that conversation between him and Mother Abigail. And then we have Tom Cullen in the 94 played by Bill Fagerbaki and here by Brad William Henke. Tom is a man in his 40s who has a moderate developmental disability. Nick encounters him and the two bond closely, despite the fact that they can't really communicate well because Nick can't speak and Cullen can't read Nick's notes. His opening statement, he said like four times. Oh, this rehearsed speech. I'm Tom Cullen. It's it's fantastic. Um, I love Hanky's delivery of these lines. I love that he feels like a real person this time around, and that was a lot of the criticism that it was very much a stereotype. Now, Fagerbaki, I think, did a good job with the material he had back then. You know, there were some parts that were a little bit cringy, and I don't think that was about him. It was the depiction, what they took basically straight from the novel and didn't change enough. I do think they're going to be changing things here. We get some of those um, colloquialisms that Tom's famous for, such as he's constantly saying, my laws, my laws, didn't you just? (laughs) Um, Or over and over again, M-O-O-N, that spells Tom Cullen, that spells whatever, everything in the world. But just as an example, Cavill said in an interview, Tom Collins a character who I certainly felt strongly about bringing into the modern day. In the novel, he feels a bit like Lenny from Of Mice and Men, really inhabiting the trope of this child trapped in an adult body. This time, we got together and talked about our experience. He's speaking about Taylor and himself. A person who is developmentally disabled isn't in the dark about the idea that they have differences in the way they process information. It's not a child trapped in a grown-up body. It was very important to us to have Tom not be in the dark about his challenges, but that he's found a way to navigate the world. And for us to try to be honest about that experience and not play him as a trope, but a real person who's lived life before Captain Trips. Hanky agreed, explaining he based his performance on, in part on a high school friend who suffered a head injury playing football in college. Hanky said, I saw him a couple years later and he was disabled. And he said to me, I'm here, still me. And that really stuck with me. So I just tried to make Tom not so one-dimensional. Another change here, in the books we get the idea that the intellectual disability Tom has is from birth. I think they even say as much. Yeah. In this adaptation, there's been some sort of traumatic brain injury, or in fact, repeat trauma. And thus, the presentation would be different for this character. Um, So I like that it sounds like Hanky, you know, both him and Zaga did a lot of research for this role, and they're going to try to bring more of an authenticity to it. I'm definitely intrigued by this version. I enjoyed what we've seen so far, albeit minimal. I'm having such trouble on Twitter. You know, I go to the hashtag, the stand, and I'm reading what other people's thoughts are. And so many people are viscerally angry at this version. And I don't know why, because we haven't seen enough to be angry about it. Is it just because it's different? Mm -hmm. It's not what you envisioned? His opening statement, his 
you know, what he, how he introduces himself. Prepared speech, yep. That was really funny. Mm-hmm. I hope that's it for that. Uh, it, it can't I be every time. I have a feeling it's not going to be because... That's going to get annoying. This is what he knows when he meets new people. You know, I think... And I'm not going to get into that because I, I don't have any issues yet with presentation. There's nothing here that's offensive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that are lacking, certainly. But I, I credit that to writing problems, that there's just not enough time on them. And mainly the relationship between Nick and Tom. Yeah. How that's forged in the action of the situation, not just a couple lines exchanged in a hospital, but needing to overcome things together. I mean, in the books, they go through a tornado when they're riding on their bikes. Oh, wow. And Tom has to save Nick because Nick doesn't hear or see it coming. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Um, Tom gets very, very sick from eating some bad apples, and Nick has to take care of him while he's throwing up and having the squats for days, and it stops <laughs> their bicycle journey. I mean, there's so many things like that that you're really endeared to They've forged a friendship throughout some real trials on the journey to Boulder. That's a big example of what I mean by you're missing a piece here. Mm. But anyway, Nick also brings us to Ray Booth, who we mentioned here, the man that attacked him in Shoyo. In the 94, played by Patrick Kilpatrick, and here by Miles McCarthy. Real prick. Yeah, he's not great in any of these adaptations. I mean, the day before, not day, but days before everyone's dead, that's when... You get into a fight and lose your eye. Talk about just shit luck. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, you know, more even than that happens. We'll get to it. The other really important new figure we got this episode was Hector Drogan, or Heck, in the 94, played by Peter McIntosh, and here by TJ Kayama. Now, in the books, Heck was in Vegas. This is where we heard about him because he was crucified for drug use by Flag. That was the whole thing we got to see a bit of. Vegas didn't seem so bad in the beginning. In fact, they were more ordered and structured than Boulder was. They were getting things done quicker. They seemed to be hard workers, and there were consequences for things like drinking too much or using drugs. But the first time we see the real consequence is when Heck is punished in front of the entire community. All of Vegas has to come watch this crucifixion. I think it sinks home for people in a way that it hadn't before. What what is going on here? We're crucifying people on the direct orders of Flag. Yeah, they're jumping right to Flag being the evil man. This is the first thing we see here. Yeah, I'm sure in the books, but definitely in the 94 version, he seemed decent for a longer period of time, episode per episode, until you see the flip. This, you're seeing like he's just an evil man. Well, and you're not getting the gray of the people in Vegas yet. We haven't right. seen them. You're not getting... We haven't seen Vegas at all. How he charms them before crucifying somebody where you could almost believe. I mean, Heck tells us he was really helpful in the beginning when we were all shell-shocked. He helped bring us back to order. But again, that's a line mm. in a sentence here. We don't see any of that happening. So we don't have that emotional feeling. Okay, dumb... Overanalyzing time. If I'm creating a new society, Vegas is the last place you want to be. Because right now, if we go to Las Vegas, you got all the food, you got all the water you need because it's shipped in. Mm-hmm. It's in a desert. Yep. Legit desert. If society's done and there's no more shipments, you're going to run out of food and mm-hmm. water real quick. And yep. you're going to be legit stuck in Vegas heat. I just remember in Vegas, if you're in the peak of the day and you're going from one hotel to the other, I remember as soon as you, those glass doors open, that heat 
that quote unquote dry heat, it's not as bad as humid heat, smacks you in the face and you're like, oh, I need to get to the next hotel as quick as possible. This I cannot take. And then when you're um, during the day out in the pool, I remember I would sit down next to the pool, start reading a little bit of the book, but like every 20 minutes, I needed to jump in that pool. It was too hot. You're dry before you take a seat again. Yeah, this is a reality they describe in the earlier versions, the the book in the 94, what it was like for people traveling to get to Vegas, going through the desert, um, nearly dying of sun poisoning and heat stroke. But the fact that they were so structured and orderly and this community drew so many of the tech folks, quote unquote, they got their power back up and running a lot quicker. And so that's not something they really had to worry about. Where are you getting water? They never talked about that. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, they do mention in this story for everything, everything's, quote unquote, lying around and waiting to be picked up. Okay. They don't have to worry like in other stories about food and drink and it's all there because 99.4% of the population is gone. So that's not something they're going to need to worry about until well into the future. I think that could hold true in Vegas as well. Okay. But finally, we got a little bit more here about Mother Abigail, who we had only been seeing very small clips of prior. You know, we get to see a little more of Whoopi's interpretation. Um, This Mother Abigail certainly doesn't seem to be 108 years old, and she never says she is. Uh, Whoopi says that she's the oldest person most people have met, and maybe is doing that on purpose, but even to be the oldest person most know... I mean, she's moving pretty sprightly. She's talking quick. She's sassy. She's a person. She's a real person. She's not just a religious figure, and I like that. And she didn't necessarily choose this for herself. Absolutely, but we don't get more of her background. And since we didn't meet up in Nebraska and get to see her house before coming to Boulder, um, hear about her childhood, and we don't get to see any of the characters meet her for the first time, To me, she still is basically a figurehead at this point. Even in the 94 version, you never got background on her. I'd like to see, you know, what kind of person was she before God spoke to her? And when did God speak to her? And the book goes way into that. I mean, people have even criticized down to what her bowel movements are or are not like. What does she struggle with at this point in time? But I think King did that for a reason. You learn everything from when she was a kid, like 10 years old to now. Oh, wow. Three husbands that she outlived, all these children that she had, this farm she struggled to maintain that had been in the family for so long. You get a lot about Abigail Fremantle, and I think it's interesting. We'll get into all that and more. Let's jump into our crow's eye view and talk about the plot. There are some things we've discussed already, but others that we want to pay more attention to, such as the fact that in the past, we open up on a much younger Nadine growing up in a group home where the other girls pull out a Ouija board and convince the new girl to join in. As soon as she does, the planchette spells out Nadine on the page and then starts moving violently, gouging letters into the floor. The others run out screaming, but Nadine stays back to read the message. Nadine will be my queen. We are in the house of the dead, Nadine. That was intense. And what are the chances when you open up the doors to the spirits that the devil himself comes in? Also, what are the chances that you're living with someone who's going to be chosen by the devil? There's a few things. Chris, you and I on our Patreon, I think this October, for Halloween, we were going over scary things or spirit things. And we talked about the Ouija board, how it was created Mm -hmm. at first. I never saw a Ouija board. Well, I guess this isn't. It's a planchette. 
chalkboard with a pencil. Well, so the, it's essentially the same thing. The device itself is called a planchette okay. that you're moving around. And so originally it was just that with the pencil in it until they developed the board and made it into a game version okay. that had letters on it. But it was still the way you would communicate. That's why this is labeled as a planchette. I would mess that up so much because as we discussed, you move it yourself and I would spell everything wrong. And the fact that you can't pick up the pencil would make it harder for me too. And I'd, I'd get to the A and be like, wait, how do I connect the A with the... <laughs> <laughs> well, the other girls think that's what's going on at first, right? Yeah. Stop moving it. Now, when we're doing our notes, we do pause often, but most of the time we're trying not to pause. So we're doing our notes really fast. We're typing. And I'm not worried about spelling. <laughs> but looking back at my notes, for Ouija board, I, spe- I spelled it ruggy. R-U-G-I. Oh, jeez. Well, <laughs> Ruggy board. Jay, how do you spell Ouija? Cause <laughs> oh, I don't really know. <laughs> it's, it's spelt Ouija. That's right, Which yeah. is, is really the real way. But I think what's critical here, and by the way, when we see the image of the letters gouged into the floor, yeah, darkly gorgeous, that shot. Oh, beautiful. It's critical to show that Flag has been contacting Nadine. He chose her from a very young age. Later, we see when she thinks back on that, she is wearing the Blackstone necklace. Yeah, I enjoyed that because it explained to us what we saw in the the episode prior. When we first meet Nadine, we see the necklace. And I'm like, whoa, wow. She's already got a necklace made out of it. When did Flag see her? How did he convince her? Because she looks like she's probably not a bad person. And now we see it was from a young age. Yeah, and she was always drawn to him, even here. It's scary, but she wants to see what's written. She has an interest in Flag. I don't know how much of this is translating from then until later life. She was also scared of him, though. She wants to meet him. She wants to go to him. She's intrigued by the fact that he has selected her. In fact, she is, in a way, saving herself. Well, if you think about it, and I'm guessing here, Flag chose a woman who doesn't have parents, Mm -hmm. doesn't get attention, know is in a group home where you know kids aren't getting individual attention so he's working off of those insecurities making her feel important and at this age make sure I, I specify at this age she seems also sexually driven by him yes and again throughout the story in the books uh thus as i said she is saving herself and there are opportunities with other people that she turns down and it evolves into her almost being emotionally isolated from everyone else because there's a part of her that is reserved. Mm. And that is why the relationship she develops with Joe is such a big deal because he really needs her on this level she hasn't experienced. When Flag says, mind the kid, it's got a double meaning. Mm -hmm. Not just the fact that he's walking in on you right now. Mm -hmm. Flag probably knows her only weakness right now that could break the walls that I've helped build around her to protect my quote-unquote queen. Yeah, her humanity, her connection to others, and by extension of Joe, her connection to Larry, which is all extremely interesting, especially if you consider the fact that Joe seems to have a bit of the shining in this story. He always knows, right? He shows up when she's using this board and he's looking at her. Mm. What's going on there? This is more than what you're saying. He knows about Harold. So he felt he was sleeping and he felt the evil coming in from the Ouija board. Mm Mm-hmm. Planchette, and that's what brought him in. And yeah, I mean, it, they're making it blatantly obvious whenever Harold comes in and Joe's around. 
I mean, he doesn't even hide the fact that he does not like that mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. Somehow nobody else is picking up on that. It's, it's kind strange. of weird. But after this, we do see that short but kind of critical scene four months ago of Nadine meeting Larry, where Joe runs at him with a knife to try to stab him. I wonder why that is. Well, you know, basically because I think we're not going to get a lot more of this. This isn't a spoiler to say that when Nadine found him, he was in what they describe as a feral state. Yeah. Uh, we talked about that previously, not wearing clothes, not talking, actually running around grunting. She saved him because he had some kind of infection. His whole family was dead. He was sick. He starts to trust her a little bit, but she's briefly pushing the idea that they're going to need to connect with other people, and Joe doesn't like it. So when they first see Larry, she wants to go talk to him, and Joe wants to kill him. So they wind up following him for a long time from a distance, and she keeps kind of putting forth that idea, we're going to have to go talk to him, Joe, at some point, um, until finally he runs at him with the knife, and they have their first encounter. Nadine is immediately eager to join up, but Larry is resistant, saying that the woman he got out of New York with killed herself. Maybe he's meant to be alone. Plus, he doesn't really have any idea what he's doing. Like we said, he's just following these guidelines. Larry says, anytime I go someplace, Harold's already been. I just felt like he knew the answers before I even thought to ask the questions. But he does relent, and they wind up going on together. We see sometime later, the three of them sitting in the bleachers at a baseball field, and Joe is drawn by the sound of Larry playing the guitar, singing, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man. Did they hear us? I know, right? Because we were like, maybe they'll never sing it. He sang it a little bit, whispered it, and then you, you sent me the original. They played the whole song, basically. I didn't realize that you got a couple of lines of this, what it sounded like on the radio, in the 94 when Larry's driving his car. I must have completely blocked that out. And now, by request from Bay Ridge, Larry Underwood, and Baby, can you dig your man? Well, Baby, can you? I know you got the head drop right there in your ass. So 80s. <laughs> Here I am, baby, on my knees to apologize. There's nothing I won't do for the two of us to make a stand. Uh, well, this version's a, a little more updated. Yeah, he's got the kind of more soulful acoustic yeah. thing happening that I like. I love the 80s. What I love here, though, Larry then offers the guitar to Joe to try it out. And he immediately plays this very accurate rendition. Now, in the books they describe, Joe has never played the guitar before. He's never heard this song. He's watching Larry hit the notes as he plays mm-hmm. and is sort of a savant when it yeah. comes to music. He's able to just recreate it, but he's frustrated because he can't make the fullness of the notes call out. He doesn't know why. And that's when Larry explains, well, you got to build up calluses and hold the strings tighter. Let me help you. And your hands are smaller. I remember trying to play guitar when I was young. I mean, your pinky starts hurting so mm-hmm. much until you build that up. Just from, you have to stretch it in weird ways. Well, so Joe now doesn't want to give it up for a moment, won't give it back, but does over time agree to kind of let Larry show him a few things. But that's it. Larry's guitar is gone. Oh, yeah. There's no fighting to get it back. But I'm sure there's a PC Richards that can just uh, break into. There's a million guitars everywhere. Yeah, pick up a guitar. (laughs) 
And, you know, this is so important. It's, it's really a language he can talk to Joe in and the first emotional bond he goes from wanting to kill him to actually being closer to Larry than Nadine. Mm. Well, I don't, I don't, I'm not getting that now yet on the show. No, I, I think they could have easily shown you that because the scene last episode where Nadine wants to stay back and unpack the house, she says, can you take him to go meet Harold? Yeah. It, it's really that by this point, Joe wants to go with him. He likes hanging out with Larry. Larry. <laughs> um, I think you're going to see that eventually. Let's talk about some different scenes from the past, though, where Stu meets Glenn. We go back to four months earlier in Pennsylvania, where first, at a gas station, Harold is siphoning gas for his and Franny's bikes. He goes to relieve himself (laughs) behind the building. And midway through, Stu finds him and admits he's been following them, waiting for the right time to introduce himself. And Stu says exactly what I was thinking, kind of, when he was peeing. What did I say? I was like, I get that no one's around, but still, like, the woods are right there. I would still go pee in the woods. I wouldn't pee on a car. Yeah, (laughs) but super smart that it's the only time Harold puts the gun down. Yep. And Stu knows it, and he shows his intelligence, his military background. I know you got another one on your ankle. He knows Franny's coming up behind him without even looking. I'm being calm right now. I want to introduce myself, but if I need to, I can take care of myself, so let's put that out on the table. He realizes, though, that that's getting them off to the wrong foot. (laughs) Tries to restart. Hey, my name's Stu. Who are you guys? But Harold is instantly suspicious and doesn't want to take a chance on getting to know this guy. Franny would like to perhaps team up. I mean, it's the first person they've seen alive since the super flu, right? I'm Fran Goldsmith. That's Harold Louder. Fran! Harold, if we didn't want people to know our names, why are we spray painting it across the country? She's got a point there, Harold. That's how I was keeping track of you. Nice to meet you, Mr. Redmond. Best of luck. What are you doing? Harold? We, we, we can't be 100% sure that this guy is okay. And if we can't be 100% sure... We can't be 100% sure of anyone. Harold, are we really going to send away the first person that we've seen? Come on. If we're not out here looking for people, then what the fuck Look, are we... Look, we can, we can argue about it all you want. I'm not taking a chance. So now you've got a choice. Either you stay with the guy who's helped you stay alive these last couple weeks, saved your life in Ogunquit, or you can throw in with this happy asshole and his fucking dimples with no way to know for sure that he's not Jeffrey Dahmer. It's another display, A, of Harold's controlling. There's a great conversation in the books where Stu gets this immediately. You think she is a piece of property to own. And then if you keep her all to yourself without anyone else coming into the picture, you can manipulate this situation until maybe she'll like you. She's not property. She's a woman. She has a mind of her own. She's going to do what she wants. Now, Harold doesn't like that at all. But I think you're, you're picking up on that same vibe here because I go back to, out of all the people in this show, Owen Teague is killing it being Harold. Even the way he walks. Yeah, he walks funny. That weird forward like stomp kind of thing. <laughs> He's just pitch perfect, Harold. I think that's very interesting because I don't know if you'd heard this. Owen Teague was not originally slated to play Harold. Well, okay, so this production goes back years and years when there was going to be different showrunners and Matthew McConaughey was going to be involved. But even when these showrunners first took over, they had talked to Nat Wolf, who is now playing Lloyd Henry, about being Harold. The guy in the uh, jail cell. Yes, 
It took so long, though, that by the time they got to this, Nat Wolf had aged out of the role of, of the role of Harold. And I mean, I, I really like him, but Owen Teague is just such the perfect person. He's doing it well. Well, they do decide to go their separate ways, but before leaving, Franny tells Stu their plans are to head to the CDC in Atlanta. He said he heard it was compromised and plans to head to L.A. I think it's weird that he doesn't tell her, by the way, I was in the CDC right here in Virginia, and I know what's been going down there. This might be a waste of your time, Mm. which is how it played out in the other versions. But they just split up here. And after separating, Stu comes upon Glenn Bateman. He invites Stu back to his place for dinner where he's got a generator so the lights are on. He's got more conveniences. He's got caviar, which (laughs) Stu has never tried. Oh, yeah. They talk about their past. Glenn says that his wife was a professor and physicist who died 10 years ago, and Stu shares about his wife dying. Neither of them ever had kids. He also gets some of this cute banter with, you know, Glenn warming to East Texas, who doesn't talk much, giving Glenn the opportunity to just spout all of his <laughs> philosophical ideas. This is where we get the critical, at least half of the speech from Glenn on what will happen in this post-apocalyptic society. He says, show me a man or woman alone and I'll show you a saint. Give, Give me, me two, two and they'll, they'll fall, fall in love. love. Give me three. They'll create a charming little thing called society. It's true. You need a society to build buildings and golf courses and towns and steeples and create the internet, everything else. But the other stuff society gives you, let's think about that, East Texas. Outcast, prejudice, competition. You can keep the rest of that crap for yourself. He continues on, though. After three, he says, give me four and they'll build a pyramid. Give me five and they'll make one an outcast. Give me six, and they'll reinvent prejudice. Give me seven, and in seven years, they'll reinvent warfare. Man may have been made in the image of God, but human society was made in the image of his opposite number and is always trying to get back home. Very philosophical. So (laughs) he says, you know, when we're apart, we go crazy with loneliness. When we're not, we go crazy with togetherness. One, two is okay, but the more people enter into the picture, the more we try to start back up the old ways, the more we, we sort of lose it, we slip back, and all these bad elements begin surfacing. So while society has its positives, it also brings prejudice, competition, kind of everything we're seeing with Harold and Stu interaction. It's what got them into this mess. So Glenn thinks maybe they're better off not starting it back up right away. In the books, he also talks about technology really being at the crux of that, that it will reintroduce society. That's the first thing we'll want back, the power, the lights, the heat. But it's also the beginning of the end because there's all these toys, quote unquote, lying around just waiting to be picked up. What does that extend to? Weapons, bigger, badder weapons. There's one society, there's bound to be another. They're going to fight They're going to get into a war with each other. It's unavoidable, he thinks. Well, the next morning, looking through Glenn's paintings, Stu finds one of Mother Abigail in the corn. Startled, he wakes Glenn up and asks him, what is this? (laughs) He says it's the most vivid dream he's ever had. He doesn't believe Stu at first that they're having the same dream, which might in fact be prophetic, until they stumble upon this shared knowledge of the location they're headed, Hemingford Home. And Stu finds another painting of a pregnant Franny that Glenn made three days ago. So something is going on. 
And I think he has no choice but to believe that this knowledge is coming from somewhere else. I would too. I like the way they created that scene. They were still trying to figure it out. Glenn saying, "Uh, no, it's just a commercial you remember, Mm. just like me. Mm -hmm. But then when they both realized Mother Abigail and she said similar things to them. But then with Franny, he's like, but she wasn't pregnant when I met her. At least she's not showing Mm. or something like that. And that is the culmination of many scenes in the books Mm. of them coming to this point of realization with the dreams. I think it's, it's great the way they handled that. Well, here's the thing I have that pisses me off in any movie, show, book, whatever. If Mother Abigail just spent the time to actually s- explain things to these people, <laughs> you know, she didn't tell Tom. Now, I'm, I'm sure when she spoke to Tom, he was completely of able mind. Just like when she spoke to Nick, he could talk, you know? Yes, they're different in these dreams. So... <laughs> Say, Tom, just so you know, when you meet Nick, he can't hear and he can't talk. You know, like that would be helpful for fuck's sake. Uh, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, like you said, that's always the case when we're in these situations. Uh, Stu, look out for Harold. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to. I think there's good in him, but, you know, he might go. The thing is, though, like in the books, Mother Abigail herself doesn't know a lot of this stuff. Yes, she's getting information from God, but what he wants her to know at the time, he wants her to know it. Real piecemeal and general ideas. And she's always praying to him saying, Lord, tell me, what do I do about this? What's going to happen with this? And then she realizes, oh, wait a second. Like, that's not the way this works. So she wants to go across the way to a neighboring farm Mm-hmm. so she can get some chickens to cook because she knows all these people are going to be showing up for the first time at her house. But it's quite a distance. And she first starts saying, help me get there. Let me be strong. Let me not be tired on the way. Make it easy. I don't want to encounter any problems. And she's like, it's not like God's going to send a chariot for me. He gives me the strength to overcome those things. Okay. So, you know, you're kind of getting the explanation as to the way this does and doesn't work from her. Bullshit. God should just make food here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that takes us to our next and last area in the past, which is Nick and Tom. I'm half joking, by the way. I, I so know. So people know. This is like a Dumbledore conversation. Yeah. Well, here we're at five months earlier in Shoyo, Arkansas, where Nick Andros bumps into a man at a bar, accidentally causing Ray Booth to spill his drink and doesn't notice Ray angrily coming up behind him until he punches him repeatedly until Nick passes out. This is a cool moment. When he's unconscious, Nick dreams of flag. Perhaps the best flag dream yet. We see him laying out cards for Nick at a Vegas-style table. He knows Nick's backstory, that he came from El Salvador. His mother crossed the border in a trunk of a car to give her son a better life that he didn't receive. Also, slightly different, we'll get into that. But flag offers to make Nick his right-hand man and give him anything he wants. Well, here's my offer, son. I want to make you my right-hand man. Give you anything you want. More than your dear departed madre ever could have dreamed. I already made it so you can hear. I can give you a voice, too. What about your eyes? Man can't hear, can't talk. I'd imagine his eyes become his whole world. He lays out three aces, a red stone, a rat, and a wolf. That pretty much says it. Last episode, in the sewers, that first rat that initiates Rita's freakout, that was the devil. In the other flag scenes, flag is kind of, um, you know, teasing 
some wooing. This one, he's straight up, he's like, this is what you're lacking? You never had a voice? Would you like to have a voice? Well, and how cool that his first choice was not Lloyd, but Nick. He wanted someone like Nick, who he could sway to his side when he couldn't get him. Then he moved on to other people he might be able to bring over. Uh, People that were a little more subservient, not going to question his (laughs) desire for them to worship him. You know, the next card he pulls out is a queen with his stone, but her mouth covered. Yeah. He wants a silent worshiper. Don't question me. Just get on your knees, right? Nick's not having that. He gives him the finger, (laughs) and that's when Flag pulls out a king with one eye and a crow. Nick wakes in a hospital bed. He's got that bandage over the eye, so we know that that part did happen here. And he sees everyone in the room is dead. They all have that tube neck. He walks out to an empty lobby where he reads a newspaper headline, trying to figure out what's going on. And it says, is this the end? Now, can you imagine whatever happened to Nick, if he was in a coma or unconscious this whole time, you miss all of these occurrences. You wake up and 99% of the world is just gone. You have no idea. The one person he winds up meeting eventually, which is Tom, can't tell him how things have gotten to this place. How terrifying. Oh, it'd be scary. Second to the way Walking Dead started. Mm-hmm. Actually very similar. Yeah. But instead of being deaf and can't talk, you just have zombies everywhere. But he <laughs> wakes up in a hospital yeah. having missed all of that. There were actually a couple of moments in this episode that did remind me of Walking Dead. When Heck shows up in the car. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's definite vibes of that going on. Uh, back here, though, a man throws things to get Nick's attention until he finally sees a sick Ray handcuffed to the bed. There is the kind of fun call out that in the background of that room, we see a sheriff who has died. Okay, so it's a little like, got it. It's a wink. And again, we'll talk about that in the closer look. But here we see Nick not abandon Ray, but actually stay to take care of him. It is the one kind of moment. It's supposed to stand as a full representation for everything we saw Nick do and really sacrifice and be the person who is going to stay behind and try to take care of these individuals against all odds. It's not a lot, but I think it does tell you a little about him. We also see Nick fall asleep and have another dream, this time walking into Mother Abigail's home through the corn. As you said, he can speak here and admits that the dark man scares him. And that's when Mother Abigail says the Lord has chosen to talk to her. And it doesn't matter that Nick doesn't believe in him. He believes in Nick. She has a job for him to be her voice, so he should come find her. I read an article that put this really well, the contrast of Flag offering to change Nick. You'll be happier. You'll be better if you're different, right? Isn't this great? I can give you hearing. I can give you your voice. Mother Abigail doesn't say that. She says, you have these gifts already. And they could be helpful here. You can serve a purpose in Boulder on my side. She just wants to bring out the best in Nick. So now Nick wakes to find Tom Cullen. (laughs) We mentioned that he introduces himself with this prepared speech he has for meeting new people. You know, don't be alarmed by my behavior. I have difficulty reading social cues. Uh, You could kind of see Nick getting frustrated. He wants to be able to communicate, tell Tom who he is, find out information, but he can't. And instead, Tom just keeps running through the same speech. He finally manages to cut off his stream of words, but Tom reiterates, did I mention I can't read? And he finally comes to the understanding that Nick can't hear him. 
And he says, wonder why she didn't tell me, the nice old black lady from inside my head. She's the one who told me where to find you. Yeah, I wonder why. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You could have told him. Anyhow, lastly, we'll go into the present in Boulder, where we see Franny come into a makeshift doctor's office they've set up, run by a nurse and a vet tech. So not quite ideal at this point yet. But Franny goes for a sonogram that shows the image of her healthy baby and pulls out a picture she keeps of Jess, the father. Confirmation, because they didn't put that in the 94 series. It's weird. The 94 almost left you believing this could be Stu's baby Uh because they don't tell us about her pregnancy beforehand. And then we do that quick cut. We see her together with Stu. Now she's she's pregnant. pregnant. But the books, there is a whole backstory that I won't talk about in case we do get that for Franny. Before the super flu, the pregnancy, the big thing here is that she wonders aloud if one immune parent is enough to pass immunity on to the baby. I would wonder that too. That's going to be a critical question, not just for herself and her own child, but society, the future of survival yeah, yeah. of mankind. Meanwhile, Stu is out in the woods hunting with Larry when a bloody race car pulls up. And a man falls out the door, unconscious from blood loss. We see clear crucifixion wounds. It's not a race car. It's a Ferrari. Sorry. Well, just in case people... (laughs) The first thought in my head was, okay, I get it. This was me. This was my first thought. I mean, as soon as it pulled up before he fell out or anything. Mm. And I was like, hmm, yeah. If this was me and basically I can take whatever I want. My initial thing would be like, I always wanted a car like this. Let me drive it a little bit, but I wouldn't use it because it's not economical. You need something that's good on gas. You need something that can and they deal need with to bumps keep and pulling off the side of the road because it's clogged with cars. So they're looking for you know. I would drive it momentarily just a, to get that feeling. A Land Rover, <laughs> something along those lines, a yeah. Jeep. But then once he falls out and we realize he's from Vegas, mm. it makes sense. I bet Vegas is all about. The wants of human mm. kind. That's how flag keeps them happy, I guess. So you're going to get all your Ferraris. You're going to get everything you always wanted in life. And I'm sure they've side. got the roads cleared there. Oh, and, yeah. You know. Well, the man wakes to tell them, I couldn't be forgiven until I deliver the message. He's coming. They bring Heck to the doctor. Stu finds Nick already knows he's from Vegas. So Nick's definitely getting continued stream of information. And the committee members gather to discuss the situation. We see those five now grouped up. Glenn, Stu, Nick, Larry, and Franny. Yeah, we got our five. I like the five. It's a good five. This is the bolder five. Everyone with different skills, different strengths that they bring with it. Yeah, as we mentioned, that's streamlined down from the seven in the books because I don't think we're going to get, or at least not intimately, uh, those other couple of characters. This is pretty much the main group. I'm hoping that Franny will play a slightly bigger role here because they continue to uh, perhaps just struggle a little little bit with the development of the female characters. But we also get that moment with Glenn where he's saying he's unsure if God's actually talking to mother. Um, Representative of many people who are wondering that. Some people are fully bought into it, but others are saying that wasn't my viewpoint before. I'm struggling to get on board with this idea. And, you know, shouldn't we find out what everyone wants, like a democracy? Uh, But Mother Abigail enters to remind him Nick is her voice. He's speaking through her. So, you know, just listen to him, Glenn. (laughs) She then goes inside to speak with Heck, who tells Mother he dreamed of her. And he came from a bad place where there's a man who isn't a man. The hard case, the walking dude, Randall Flagg. 
He showed up when they were all still shell-shocked, and at first they were really grateful to him for bringing them out of the chaos. He promised them a chance to be on top for once. But then he began bringing in slaves. Heck realized this was a bad place. He wanted to leave, showing us, as you said, there's also some good people who wound up in Vegas. Sure. That came to that realization, and then how do I get out? The having slaves thing is different than the previous iterations. Yeah, I don't know if it fits. I I really think they're pushing this idea of evil pretty heavy. I think it was enough to know he's crucifying people. Heck, as you said, originally was crucified for doing drugs. Right. So some people, I'm not saying this is how I think, but I'm sure some people who are trying to stay ignorant because they're a little happy could say, oh, well, this is a little heavy-handed, but I get it. He doesn't want us doing drugs and ruining ourselves. Maybe. uh, Which, yes, but, you know, in the books they tell us, obviously what Flag cares about is, A, that they're getting the work done. Right. And drinking or doing drugs could compromise their ability to do that. But also, would it make them be less submissive, think about things, get a little more aggressive? Like, yeah, maybe they might get out of line, so I can't allow that. Yeah. But this one is blatant. It's like he wanted to leave. Yes. So that's why we crucified him. So there's no doubts, you know? It's a heavy hand how the show is doing that. Yeah. How far of a drive is that? I mean, that's pretty far to be... They said it in the books. It was a couple hours. Three, four hours. And just to basically tell her, you know, I'm coming to get you. Yeah. When he can send them all dreams. I mean, I guess he thought this would be more viscerally impactful. Well, also, I don't think he has any way of communicating with Mother Abigail. So this was the first way. That is unclear at this moment. If they can communicate with each Each other. other. We know they can communicate with their people and can be in the same dream at the same time. But are they at all cognizant or controlling of that? We don't know. That would be interesting if Mother Abigail goes to sleep and Flag tries to manipulate her at first Mm. in the beginning of everything. And then when he couldn't, now he tries to scare her every so often in her sleep. Yeah, as we said, there was a little bit of that going on in the books with the weasels coming after her on the trek to the other farm, Flag showing up in what was otherwise good dreams. It was um, not exactly within their control, but they were able to encounter each other. I feel like God would be, should be protecting her at least. Well, he did. (laughs) Anyhow, here... Heck talks about how he was crucified, sent here with this message, and then appears to be fully possessed. He starts seizing and rocking. He's bleeding afresh from his wounds. He sees crows crashing headlong into the window. I have your blood in my fists, old mother. Pray your God takes you before you hear my boots on your steps. little pigs and it, you know again bringing in those vibes of the jamie sheridan randall flag mm. you know it also turns super dark when we see that afterwards heck falls back on the bed and he dies yep. so i think they're upping and exemplifying the stakes here and lastly we see what's going on with nadine in the present she is dressing for the day trying to look normal this is very interesting her putting herself together rehearsing how to look like a regular person, much like we saw Harold doing earlier on. Oh, yeah. 
They mirror each other. Mm-hmm. Pun intended. She's getting ready to go over to the school. She finds Joe hiding under the bed, clutching that guitar. He's not into going with her, but finally does. And there she meets Teddy, who shows her around. She says she wants to teach at this school so she can offer the children a sense of normalcy, thinking that's what they need. As she's talking, Harold comes in. Uh, It seems the two have been cleaning things out, getting it ready. And this is when Joe, again, has that reaction to Harold. Yeah. And after Nadine leaves, Teddy starts joking around that maybe now he's got a shot with a woman like her. (laughs) Again, this time I did pick up on it, that Harold is trying to joke around with him. He's like, yeah, I don't think so. But it's off. In his face, he's like, no, I'm serious. I don't (laughs) think you've got a shot with her. I was a little confused because she said you don't want to be late for your first day of school. But obviously nothing's set up at all. So what? It was more for her to come see how she's going to be a teacher there but i think maybe she wanted joe to see it too and get a feel for it i don't know or you know he can't be left alone but back at the house later that's when she pulls out the ouija board remembering the incident from childhood and she is now transported to the desert with flag where she tells him she doesn't like it in boulder she can't feel him there but flag says he needs her to stay for a while to be his eyes and do one thing before she leaves Kill the witch and the five puppets she put in charge. I already found the weapon. I just need you to pull the trigger. Mind the boy. The weapon is Harold. Yeah, and we know that if it weren't clear enough, because later when we see what that planchette spelled out, it was Harold Lauder. But the interesting thing, she has a reaction to killing people. When he first says that, I I need these five people dead, you can tell, well, am I supposed to kill them? She doesn't like that idea. But then he says, well, you don't have to do it. Just pull the trigger of this weapon I have put into place for you. So how does she do that? How is that going to come to pass? Manipulate him sexually. Obviously, Harold wants to be loved. That's his weakness. He could never get a Franny in the old world. Now he sees can't even get Franny in the new world. But I think it's interesting they draw that line there where Teddy's talking about, but maybe now I could get a woman like Nadine. So that is some foreshadowing, Mm -hmm. for sure. But as you said, also, mind the boy. Yeah, I think it had two meanings. So mind the boy as in Harold, mind the boy as in Joe who's walking into the room, or mind the fact that Joe can do more than just stumble upon you with this planchette. He can actually feel things. But I I think make you soft. Yeah. Take you off of the track that I've put you on Mm -hmm. for years now. If anyone could, maybe Joe could. It's great. It's got so much to it. Then we go over to see what Harold's actually doing, him and Teddy bringing Heck's body to that burial pit. Uh, Teddy's kind of upset. He thinks this is the first person they've brought there who wasn't already dead for weeks. He's Mm -hmm. not a super flu victim. And that's a scary thing to think about, that even people who are surviving now, things could happen to them. Um, Others could die. Harold says, first of many. Yeah. If you're Teddy, how do you not turn around and... Be like, what's up, Harold, dude? what are you talking about, you crazy loon? <laughs> People are, seem to be ignorant to this, all these signs. Mm. Or even Mother Abigail. Shouldn't mm-hmm. she know? Shouldn't she feel something? Well, that's an interesting thing that I'm hoping we get to later about her interactions with Nadine within yeah. Boulder. Yeah, her interactions with Nadine, her interactions with Harold. Mm-hmm. I wonder how those go. Yeah, because that's in the books. Okay. Well, that's going to wrap up the plot and take us to our dream rating. So on a scale of 1 to 10 dreams, Jason, what do you give episode 3? 
Christina, for this episode, again, I'm enjoying watching these these episodes, but it's our job, since we're covering it, to break it down and discuss its strengths and weaknesses. I think this episode has been right on par with the other ones. Last week, I gave it 8.2. I think this week, I'm going to go back to an 8. Yeah, I mentioned there are parts of this I really like. I enjoy meeting Glenn Bateman. We don't get much of Nick and Tom, but I think the introductions are good. I'm struggling a bit with the present-day boulder and the timeline starting to exponentially interfere with development of the characters for me. So I'm definitely going to take a step backwards for this, and I'm also going to give it any dreams. And now we move on to our Clatcher segment. Starting off with our MVS, which is Most Valuable Stand, we ask our Clatchers via Twitter, at CKC Podcast, who took the most valuable stand this episode, and what are your thoughts? This week, we gave you Nick Andros, Nadine Cross... Glenn Bateman, and Mother Abigail. She makes her first presence on the polls. Last place with 12.5% is Nadine Cross. Oh, I'm surprised she got some votes here, so I guess not too bad. Well, story-wise, we saw a lot more about her, and her background is, is definitely building here. We, we saw that she was chosen as a kid. We see that she's in love or infatuated with this uh, flag. And uh, she is definitely a threat. Yeah, to me, it was more of flag still in this episode. It was more of him pulling the strings on everyone with Nadine really not having much agency at all. We do find out he's got a job he wants her to do. So I think that's going to continue to grow as she takes a more active role in fighting for his side. I, I don't know that I love and I'm not getting into the whole Amber Heard controversy outside of this show, but strictly hor- her depiction, it's a little flat in every other scene for me, and I understand she's supposed to be concealing mm-hmm. a great degree of her personality from others, but I'm just, I'm not getting that. Meanwhile, when she's in the scenes with Flag, I think she is trying to do a little of the San Giacomo 94 adaptation, the way her, her body and her facial expressions are when she's around Flag, it, but it almost feels like an imitation. It's not quite as good mm-hmm. as the way San Giacomo did it, so... Yeah, I don't know. That's just not working great for me yet. But coming in third place with 18.8% is Mother Abigail. Um, We definitely get the bigger look at her here than we have so far seen. Um, I might not be loving this interpretation either, but I do enjoy when she's sitting at the bed talking to Heck. It's as though she already knows all this. Go on, tell me what you need to say. Mm -hmm. I know the message that's coming. I know what Randall Flagg is. Yeah. And feeling horrible that this is going to happen, but almost it's inevitable. Yeah, it's almost like, go on, get it out so we can end your suffering. Mm -hmm. A lot of people already have a finalized opinion of Whoopi, and I still at this point do not. I'm enjoying when she's on screen. At least this episode I did. I like the sass, and I'm hoping she's a little more involved than the 94 version allowed her to be. Well, that seems clear, that she's going to be more of a participant than necessarily a figurehead in this community this time around. And in second place, close with first, 31.3% Nick Andros. It's a much tighter poll overall this time, which is cool. I like Nick. Again, like we said at the top, his backstory is lacking in this version so far. But there's something about him very appealing. I love the way that Flag couldn't even make him second guess. He just gave him the bird and said, hmm. not for me. Nice try. <laughs> and the actor, Henry Zaga, I'm enjoying the way he's acting. You can feel his emotion. You can feel when he's worried, when he's disappointed, or has an idea. 
I'm intrigued to get more of him. But coming in first place with 37.5% is Glenn Bateman. I kind of anticipated he'd be a crowd favorite, as he was with the Ray Walston portrayal, but mm-hmm. we mentioned Greg Kinnear is doing a fantastic job with this. I really liked him, but let's see what the Clatchers had to say. Melly commented, I voted for Nick because he was strong enough to say no, F you to flag, <laughs> and join Mother Abigail. I would also have voted for Stu because he keeps bringing people together. Mm. This was the best episode so far. I'm loving how everything is coming together. Yeah, again, with the uh, Twitter, they only allow four people. If we could put five, Stu would have been there. But I have a feeling we're going to see a lot more of Stu on that. I think the problem is we could probably put Stu up there every time. Yeah. (laughs) And we have two voicemails, but that pertains to past episodes, so we'll wait on that one. Okay, well, let's go right into your MVS, Jason. Well, I was thinking about Glenn and Nick. Glenn, because he was fun to watch. He has a great personality. Those scenes were fantastic. But inevitably, just like Melly, I landed on Nick because he actually made a stand against Flag mm. and said, you like to be a bird? Well, I got a bird for you, too. <laughs> uh, I agree. At this point in the books in the 94, it for sure would have gone to Glenn. He's the most enjoyable character. I'm worried. I hope they don't take all of that away from him in this adaptation, that we will get more of his influence. But it's really just a fun personality at this point. Nick is the one taking a stand. I think also Flag, and he's he's a bit coming out on top here, which I don't like. But Nick is the one who manages to go against him. So he's going to be my MVS as well. Clatchers, if you'd like to join in on the conversation, you could always comment under our polls. And we will discuss it in every episode. Or you can email us, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. Or you can give us a call, which we had two Clatchers do this week. And it's really fun. It puts you in the seat with us on the microphone at the digital water cooler. So you can always call us at ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606. And leave us a message. Hey, Jason and Christina. This is Haley calling in. I have never called in before, but I'm a long-time listener. I was just listening to your last episode of The Stand, and I figured I would call in because I have never um, read the book, and I've never seen the 94 series, um, so I'm brand new to this. I listen to you guys often, and I listen to another podcast, and you guys are both covering it, and it has an awesome cast, so I figured I would give it a shot. I've only seen episode one so far, but... I'm liking it, and I know a lot of people uh, said that they were not a fan of the time jumps and stuff, and I actually didn't mind it, and I thought it was pretty easy to follow, just as that point of view of coming in not knowing anything about any of the characters or the plot. I didn't think it was too hard to follow. Um, I also think that I'm getting the theme of the good and evil, even though I don't know if that's the main theme or not. And I heard Christina talking about Boulder and Vegas and who's going to end up where. So I'm guessing it's like a, the good people go to one and the evil people go to another, but I'm not sure I could be totally off base. But yeah, I mean, I'm liking it a lot. And I think that the character development already got me hooked on the first episode. I think the Franny's kind of seeming like the popular girl um, and Harold's kind of like the loser guy that she doesn't want to be associated with. And so it'll be interesting to see their dynamic traveling together and then how she ends up with Stu later. So I'm interested to see all that and um, interested to see about the guy at the end. I don't know 
Um, he seems like an evil person, but he's getting a lot of buzz on like both podcasts. So people wanting to like see more of him. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah. Just giving my two cents, um, as a listener coming in with no knowledge of the book or the first series. So thanks for all you guys do. Bye. Oh, well, welcome Haley. Thank you so much for calling in for joining the conversation. And it is great to hear from somebody who's coming at this fresh. Yeah. I'm so glad you called. I think you know, we were wondering, I wonder how someone who is fresh is thinking about this and are the time jumps bothering them? Haley, if you could let us know once you've caught up to episode three, if you still mm-hmm. feel that way. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that she did at that point, at least. Yeah, I had mentioned that I watched with my family and I think they were pretty OK with one. It was two that got them slightly confused. But with me just kind of interjecting a a note here or there, Mm. they had no problem. That's why I mentioned this time around. I don't think you'd have a problem following it. It's more of, are you getting enough of the character backstory to really feel engaged and connected with them? Um, So I'd love to know how you're feeling. And do you have a favorite? Which character are you really endeared to after episode three? I'm glad that we're getting all viewers coming in on this. Yeah. What's up, CKC? Hey, this is Eric, a.k.a. E-Man, the Elder Millennial. I haven't heard you guys in a minute. I don't watch the Magicians or the Westworld, so I haven't really heard you guys since Game of Thrones ended. Um, so it's, it's good hearing you guys' excellent insights and such. Anyway, The Stand is awesome. Um, somehow, I've totally missed out. I never read the book or watched anything, so it's all fresh to me. And uh, I think that's good. I have a good perspective on it. And I'm thinking, I think it's amazing. I listened to your last two podcasts and I'm surprised to hear there's a lot of hate toward it. I don't know if people appreciate these kind of mysterious, unique stories anymore. Kind of like the OA, which I thought was amazing because you don't know. I mean, good stories make you think a lot of questions and not have a lot of answers right away. And, and the characters are awesome. I mean, the little nuances and the, the little, like that doctor in the first episode has no social skills or anything and just just the way he talks and Stephen King's really good at creating real characters you know and makes them feel really unique and such but anyway so I think it's um pretty amazing and the main guy was it Larry Underwood he's a really really good uh, I don't know who that actor is but he's awesome and uh his character's really interesting and then it's like what is going on there's magic and there's like Whoopi Goldberg is summoning people to her it's crazy but um i think his direction and cinematography the music it's all top-notch acting of course uh cool to see heather graham again anyway thanks for doing what you do guys keep it up this round is on me <laughs> welcome back great another person who hasn't seen or read the past versions yeah that's amazing i think you're right the acting has been really good i am enjoying larry underwood yeah. In this rendition of it. Me too. I think almost better than the 94 version. And I'm feeling more and more confident about that as we see more of him. And I agree with you. I like when a show or a movie makes you think a little bit. One of our favorite creators, Mike Flanagan, loves to make you think. You love his. Yeah. You know, I was so disappointed because watching this with my family, I have people who really enjoy complex stories, high fantasy you know, we're very into Game of Thrones. And then people who don't. Mm-hmm. And they were of the crowd who, when Game of Thrones started moving away from some of the politics and getting more into the fantasy aspects, said, 
oh, no, I don't like stories like this. Right. Now, Game of Thrones was amazing enough for them to say, it's fine. I can go with the dragons and the White Walkers, yeah. even though that's not my deal. But as soon as Flag started influencing events in episode two, they said, oh, no, is this going to turn Stephen King spiritual? We're wary of the quote-unquote magic that Eric brings up here. Now, I got to say, if you know it's a Stephen King story, you know that's going to happen, right? It happens in every one of his stories. I think it adds an element to it that I enjoy. I'm glad to hear, Eric, that you do as well. And coming back to what Haley said, I don't want to give away how much of that is going to be relevant in the end. I think there's enough here in these episodes that you can see that's certainly a part of things. But that's the whole point of our good versus evil segment is we don't know, right? We don't know where people are going to land and there are bad people in Boulder and good people in Vegas and um, human free will in addition to this sort of cosmic plan. Thank you so much, guys, for calling in. Thank you for everyone who voted on the poll and sent us messages. Just a reminder, if you like what we're doing and you want to hear more, you can help us in many ways, one of which is just rating and reviewing our show on iTunes. Or if there's a rating and review and you're using some different app, if there's the ability to do that, please do so. Thank you to Melly. She sent she lives in a different country. And of course, we can't see those ratings and reviews. Thank you for your rating. And thank you for sending us screenshots of other people over there who actually listen to us. Appreciate that. If you want to hear more of us, there's always our other shows or there's our Patreon. Over there, you can get up to three different types of podcasts. But to keep this short and simple, they're fun. They're educational. We review movies that you love. You can win CKC gear. And besides that, you know you're helping Christine and myself continue to do this. We've been doing it six years now. It's a commitment. And we hope to one day be able to lean on the podcast alone and not have to work, you know, regular, normal, everyday jobs. <laughs> or just some of these other podcasts who managed to get Six screeners. episodes of screeners and yeah. we didn't. So having your support, having your reviews, if you're able to leave one there as the numbers start to tick up, it helps other people find us, but it also helps us to continue to improve by maybe having access to things like that or more opportunities to better ourselves. Also, if you are a fan of Stephen King works, we have reviewed more of them on Patreon. So another reason to check that out. Head over to coffeeclatchcrew.com, see everything we've got going on, and click on the Patreon page to check out our tiers. Now, if you are afraid of spoilers, that's all we've got left, so we will see you next time when we review episode four. For those of you still here, this is the spoiler section, because I am in the way of knowing things. Today, our closer look is going to be at Nick Andros. As we mentioned, there's more things that happen in the book that we don't quite get on this adaptation. So in Stephen King's version, there is a whole arc that finds Nick given hospitality, taken in by the local sheriff, that's Sheriff Baker, after he is beat up by Ray Booth and some other men in town. They just come up to him out of nowhere. He doesn't even knock a drink over in the bar. They find him on the street and straight attack him. When he comes to, he finds himself in a jail cell and explains his situation to Sheriff Baker, who we can tell immediately is this really good guy. He hears Nick out. He understands that he's been a victim of circumstance here, lets him out of the jail, and says, hey, if you want to stick around for a little bit and you're game, we can try to get these guys. Um, I don't think you're going to get your property back. Can't promise anything, but you might get a little bit of retribution. And Nick agrees. The more he gets to know Nick, the more he likes him. He's endeared to him. He asks him to write down a bit of his life story overnight. So he'll know where Nick has been. 
And then as people in town start to get sick, including the sheriff, he actually deputizes Nick and starts to put him more and more in charge of the prison. They manage to capture these men that attacked him, so they're in there. And Nick is having to run the place, basically, take care of them, get food for them. He's going to see the sheriff and see if he's doing okay. You know, they call the doctor for him, meets his wife, Janie, who he establishes a relationship with. In this life story that he writes down for the sheriff, you get a lot more information that his father was an independent farmer. Him and his mother were having serious financial problems when she was six months pregnant with Nick and the dad was taking her into the town to see the doctor. They went into a ditch with the car. The father had a heart attack and died. Uh, Three months later, he was born, and his mom was really struggling between the financial problems and everything else. She carried on with the farm until she, quote, lost it to the big operators a few years later. Her and Nick had to move in with some friends of hers, and then one day, a man on a motorcycle hit her when she was crossing the street, and she died. And this left Nick kind of all alone. He says the Baptist church gave his mother a charity funeral, and then they took him to an orphanage in Des Moines. This is where he learned to read and write. He encountered a man named Rudy there. And it's a really touching story about him and Rudy Sparkman, who in their first meeting, he's trying to tell Nick that he's going to help him learn how to write because this is something he's going to need to know how to do. And he keeps putting a paper and pencil in front of Nick, who is angry and obstinate and doesn't want to have anything to do with anyone. And you can understand where he's at at that point. So he keeps sort of throwing the paper and, and ripping up the pencil and... Finally, Rudy ends up slapping him, not hard, but just to convey the message, this isn't getting you anywhere. You gotta li- that's not even what I'm trying to tell you. Listen to what I'm trying to tell you. And what he does is he keeps, takes the page and turns it over to the blank side, and he puts it in front of Nick, and he keeps tapping first the paper and then pointing to Nick, then the paper and then Nick, until Nick finally understood, you are this blank page. And Uh, that was the meaning of that from the book, which is why I said, Jay, you were closer than you knew to where that came from. After that, Rudy came for six years and helped to teach him reading and writing, but also a lot of other things about life. Nick says he was very lucky to have him, but in 1984, the orphanage went broke. They placed as many kids as they could, but he wasn't one of them. They thought he would get in with a family after a while, and the state would probably pay them to keep him, he wanted to go with Rudy, but, that, but at that point, Rudy was off in Africa working for the Peace Corps, so he ran away. He was 16 years old. He says he doesn't think they look too hard for him, and he figured if he could stay out of trouble, he would be okay. So far, so good. He's been traveling from place to place, just wandering around, taking odd jobs, mostly physical labor to get by and make some money. But also, he's been taking the high school correspondence courses one at a time. Because Rudy always said education was the most important. He thinks when he settles down for a while, he'll take the high school equivalency test and maybe even go to college eventually. Good for him. He's one that could have gone to the dark side, to Vegas, you know, because he's been through a lot. Absolutely. And yet you do get these amazing highlights, way more in the book of what he's going through here and his ultimate goodness. So as I mentioned, when everyone starts getting sick and he's caring for these people... He eventually has to go and care for the sheriff's dying wife. The sheriff passes away, and now his wife is really sick. The first two people to really take him in, give yeah. him a home, love him, offer him a future. He says, I, I, they gave me work. They gave me something to do. They trusted me to run the prison. Yeah. 
This is part of the reason he can't leave even when things start falling apart. I have a responsibility here. Now the sheriff's gone. What's going to happen if I leave? So he sits with Janie. He takes care of her as she dies. And she says something to him that I think is not only meaningful, but for as many times as they reference the words taking a stand in the books or what the stand is about, this was the one that stood out to me. Janie says, love is what moves the world, I've always thought. It is the only thing which allows men and women to stand in a world where gravity always seems to want to pull them down, to bring them low, and make them crawl. Mm. And it's her interpretation that that's the only thing that makes us different or better, is the desire to love each other, to care for other people. Um, You know, that's Larry's great struggle in his life, right? Me or them. And so you do get, you know, this scene where Nick has to bury her and then go back to the prison. And, you know, eventually he does let the prisoners out because the world is falling apart. And uh, those who are still alive are saying, you got to give me a chance, man. Ray Booth comes back around (laughs) to go after Nick. That's where he almost puts out his eye. Anyway, once Nick gets out of the town, that's a whole long story. That's when he encounters Tom. And that's very different, too, where he finds him. I won't get into all of that, but they go through so much together, as we discussed before, until they finally head out of Shoyo, headed for Nebraska, and they encounter another character, Julie Laurie. I'm not going to talk at all about her. I'm hoping we're still going to get her in the series and that the meeting is just going to be a little different from the 94 version. But that's a little backstory for you on Nick Andros. I like that. It's probably still only 1% of his backstory, Mm -hmm. but it's a little more... To know the next episode when you look at Nick, you'll know a little bit more about him and Mm -hmm. what he's been through. Speaking of next episode, I was a little confused because the title of episode four is The House of the Dead. When I first looked at this, I figured, oh, that's when we'll go back to Nadine and what's happening with Flag. Because in her Ouija encounter when she was younger, we hear Flag saying, we're in the House of the Dead, Nadine. And in this adaptation, we see him writing that With the planchette. Yes, on the floor. I was curious, why wasn't this in next episode? Why was this here when four is called the House of the Dead? And is that going to be a different interpretation of House of the Dead? What might we see there? Any thoughts of what could be coming up next? Well, my ignorant thought would be maybe we see more of Vegas now. Mm. Maybe that's what they're hinting towards. Um, or maybe we get a lot more of Nadine struggling to what Flag wants and Flag having to, you know, see her in, in uh, her dreams. And maybe he says it then. I don't know. I don't know. I, I would like to finally get a little bit of Vegas since we haven't seen it. In thinking about major players, we've met almost all of them except... Trash Can Man. Trash Can Man. That could be where we get that. I have a great little description of Flag from the books, but thinking we might see more of him, I'm going to save that for next time. I hope that we will be able to talk about Trash. Other than that, I'm not really sure, but despite my reservations, I still am eager to find out what happens in the future. So that'll be next time in episode four. And until then, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash ckcpodcast. This round is on me.
Please hang up and try again.